Well, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me once again uh, to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6. I suspect that for many of you, the, the crease in your Bibles is, is uh, becoming more and more well-worn uh, as you open to Nehemiah. We've spent five weeks uh, in this great book, in this great historical drama, which is not just a story, but is the truth. And uh, this morning, we again come to an interesting account that, uh, that I hope, by God's grace, amidst all the distractions, amidst all the tiredness that we feel, will once again uh, captivate us and instruct us in the way that we ought to go. And so listen as I read. Those of you who have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible... The passage is in the insert in your bulletin. Listen as I read Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hekephrium in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come now and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetebel, who was confined to his home, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin 
And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things they did. And also the prophet Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jeho- Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week I began with some phrases that really could have been modern headlines. They could have been the headlines of today. Well, today's account is doesn't read like a newspaper headline. It reads more like a, a Hollywood film. A plot to kidnap. A conspiracy theory. A smear campaign. A hired insider. Oh, we love this kind of stuff. We love conspiracies. I remember a movie several years back with the title Conspiracy Theory, and it was the story of an absolute, absolutely paranoid cab driver in New York City. He was played by Mel Gibson, and he had all these theories about government takeover, and as he began to, to share these theories with one woman, Julia Roberts' character, he came to realize that he wasn't so crazy after all. And they were after him. They wanted him now as a result. Well, I don't want to make you paranoid this morning. But kind of. Just a little bit. Because the Scriptures are clear about this. There is a conspiracy against you. There is a conspiracy against you. And what happens here in Nehemiah 6 with God's people and specifically with Nehemiah himself is in many ways a reflection of what goes on in our lives. Maybe what is going on in your life right now. Two truths that I believe that our passage teaches us this morning, two truths that I want you to remember. And the first one is this. Know the enemy of God's work. You need to know the enemy of God's work. Now we've already been introduced to those who oppose God's work in the book of Nehemiah. We've already been introduced to these men who oppose what God's people had been called to do in rebuilding this wall. 
Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem are their names. And now they're back. We didn't hear a bit about them last week, but now they are back. And they're back because the wall is essentially up. All that needs to be done to secure the city is to hang a couple doors. If you remember the taunts of these men a few chapters back, taunts about the ragtag bunch of workers that were building this wall, about the, the, the resources that they had to build, the rubble that they had to piece together. These men really believed that this was never going to happen. And yet, here it is. The wall is essentially up, and they, they have to do something. They have to step back in. And before we go any further in the story, let me just stop for a moment and, and remind you about why this matters for you. I mean, this is a historical account that happened thousands of years ago. Why? What does this have to do with you? And what, is the ta- what do the tactics of Nehemiah's enemies have to do with your life? Well, the answer is because this is God's Word and because this is God's work. This is God's Word. This isn't just a nice historical account This is an account preserved for our instruction, for our profit, for our training in righteousness. Truths that God has preserved for us to hear in 2011. And this is God's work. What we are about in our individual lives as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ as we collectively seek to bring glory to God as we build up His church, this is God's work. And our faithfulness to God's agenda in our lives is the same as the faithfulness of Nehemiah and the faithfulness of God's people to God's agenda in their lives. Because of that, the ways that they were opposed are in many ways instructive to the ways that we are opposed in our lives, in our faithfulness, the way that Satan works in general, no matter the time, no matter the place. Simply put, you need to remember that you have an enemy. And you need to remember that you, just, you don't just have an enemy, but you need to know that enemy. You need to know something about that enemy that you might be wise to his ways. Peter reminded the church in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may Devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our study of the book of Ephesians spoke 
of the ways of the devil. 6.11, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. I mean, People of God, listen to these words. Listen to these phrases. Schemes. Outwitted by His designs. This is is conspiracy type language. Even while our main character, while Nehemiah is himself accused of conspiracy within the walls of Jerusalem, it becomes clear that there's a conspiracy against him. And there's a conspiracy against us. In our own lives, as we seek to be faithful to God's work in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own communities, in our own workplaces, in our church, we face an enemy. The enemy of God's work, your Enemy. And so I want us to think, as we walk through this story, I want us to think about how the enemy of Nehemiah's day intersects with our own lives and becomes the enemy of our lives and the enemy of our days. So much more could be said about our enemy, but we learn something here In Nehemiah 6, perhaps not all of these fit into your experience. I doubt that they do, but perhaps some of you are feeling in your life, in your heart, in your walk with Christ, you are feeling one of these ways, one of these schemes, one of these plots. And I so I hope that you'll be encouraged. I hope that you will be encouraged that there is nothing new, that what you're facing is nothing new, and that knowing your enemy, you'll respond with the truth of God's Word. And so, three ploys for us to look at, three schemes of the enemy as you seek to know the enemy of God's work. And first is the simple ploy of distraction. The simple ploy of distraction. Now, these enemies have tried just bold-faced ridicule and taunt. They've tried fear through threats that they have made. Last, last week, we looked at chapter 5 where they, weren't, they were not even to be seen. Perhaps waiting just to see if God's people imploded from the inside. And none of it has worked. And so now, what do these... Enemies do, well, they turn to Nehemiah. They turn to Nehemiah, the man, personally. Clearly, Nehemiah is the leader of this people, of this project. And if they can get to him, what a catch it would be 
if they could just get to Nehemiah. Come to Ono, they say. This place that was situated between Samaria and Jerusalem, a place in the middle of hostile territory. What was Nehemiah to think at such a request? It's interesting to me that Nehemiah responds so politely to them. After all, these were the guys who just a few chapters earlier, these were the jeerers, these were the threateners, these were the disruptors of the work. And yet he diplomatically, he graciously responds to them, really with an answer that they don't deserve, and says, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now I know, and you know, and Nehemiah knew that his enemies wanted to do more than merely distract him from his work. We don't know exactly what their intentions were, but they were for harm, our text says. Nehemiah knew that his life was in danger. And yet Nehemiah doesn't state that his reason for not going is fear for his life. His reason for not going is his focus and his preoccupation with the work that God is doing. That the work is God is doing through him. Even if the motives of these governors weren't pure, which we know they weren't, but even if they were pure, Nehemiah won't be diverted from his task. God has revealed His will to me. I have set my face to it, Nehemiah says. And I will see it through. Distraction. So how might this impact us today? How might this hit us in our modern day, in our world? We live in a fast-paced world. We live in a world with a lot of distraction, and yet we supposedly have more leisure time now in our world than ever before. And yet, do we find ourselves fixated on the things of first importance? Do we find our hearts fixed on Jesus, who for the joy set before Him, fixed Himself on the Father? See, on a personal level, I can get caught up in so many things. I can make good things in my life ultimate things in my life. And that's the challenge, that's the struggle of idolatry and Satan loves to set other things in your life to pull you away from what God is doing and wants to do through you. And then on a corporate level, we have the words of of Revelation 2. As the angel spoke to the church at Ephesus and He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. No 
the enemy of God's work. Know his desire to pull your attention away from what's valuable and what's good and fixate it on something that's not. Whether for harm or innocently, it doesn't matter. Pray for a single-minded focusness about what God is doing. That's the first ploy. Second ploy, I think we see, is slander. Slander. Not just distraction, but slander. You see, after four unsuccessful attempts, the enemies of God's people go to plan B. And so the fifth correspondence comes via open letter. Via open letter. This is the, the wiki leaks of the ancient world. Right? This is the, the TMZ of this region. The letter was unsealed. And that means it was readable by everyone who came in contact with the messenger who carried it. And in fact, if the message was good enough, if it was juicy enough, the messenger just might take it upon himself to spread the message along as it traveled to its intended destination. And so the letter said essentially this, it is reported and reliable sources confirm that you, Nehemiah, are actually revolting against the king of Persia. That you're using your religion, that you're using your holy men, the prophets, to set you up as king. This, of course, Nehemiah, is treasonous behavior. And therefore, you would do well to come and speak to us, lest we be forced to report you to the king. Wow, this is a, this is a, a lie. This is a, a leak. This is a rumor. This is a, a threat. I said this wasn't the headlines of today, but boy, this sure could be. This is American politics. We've just seen this kind of thing even recently in our own day. The power of public accusation, whether provable or not. Speech can be deadly. And James speaks to the power of our tongues, to the power of words. And too often, we have to recognize that our own hearts love the scandalous. We love the juicy. We love the conspiracy theory. We love to feed the rumor mill. Satan knows this, and so he orchestrates here in the ancient world basically a smear Campaign, a campaign that will discourage, that will demoralize, that will place pressure on Nehemiah to give in and to give up. Nehemiah is a worthy example here. He will have no part. He's a man of no compromise. He calls it what it is. He's a man of prayer. He prays to the Lord, that he might stand firm in the face of of slander. 
we think about the power of words, as we think about the enemy's tactics of slander amidst us, we can't help but think about the church. The church of Jesus Christ. How too often the enemy has found success with this very scheme. As we talk. As we talk about each other. Oh, how this is something that we need to guard against and be aware of. The church we serve before this had a covenant of membership. A covenant of membership that they asked everyone to sign. and It had a number of resolutions in the covenant. And one resolution in particular I always thought was, was a powerful one. One that I know the church needs to be reminded of often. I want to read it to you. It says, By God's help and grace, I commit myself to the goal of giving only good reports, of refusing to listen to bad reports, and refusing to pass on bad reports to others. If there are policies and decisions made by the elders or deacons with which I disagree or may not understand, I will go to the officers and make my concerns known to them rather than going to others with the possibility of sowing seeds of dissension and division. If someone in the body has offended me, I promise to remain silent and forgive the person before God in my heart, allowing love to cover a multitude of sins and to go to that person privately and to seek reconciliation. I purpose to approach an offender in a spirit of gentleness and genuine love, having first corrected my own attitudes and actions. Only if I am unable to restore an offender will I share the problem with others, according to the principles of Matthew 18. When I violate this goal, I purpose to ask forgiveness of my brother or my sister and of the Lord, knowing that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And by doing these things, I will seek to promote harmony, unity, love, and peace in our church. Isn't that good? We need to know the enemy's desire to come at us through slander. And to be at guard against it. Well, one final scheme of the devil that I think we see in Nehemiah 6. The scheme to rationalize sin. The scheme to rationalize sin. See, our our story takes an even more sinister turn in verse 10 as Shemaiah enters the scene. We don't know exactly who this man is, but... If you read the text, it's a little bit fishy already about who he is. He is apparently confined to his home, but he wants Nehemiah to meet him in the temple. That's a little bit fishy. He claims to have inside information concerning a plot against Nehemiah, and he therefore encourages Nehemiah to to come into the temple. There's only one problem. Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not allowed in the temple of God. Only the priests are allowed in the temple 
of God. But Nehemiah could have thought, Lord, this is a special case. I am your servant to do what you forbid. Just this one instance is acceptable. Surely you want me safe. You want this work to continue. You don't want me to be killed. You've obviously provided me knowledge of this plot. And so the rationalization of sin could have gone in Nehemiah's mind. But Nehemiah doesn't rationalize sin. He stands on the truth of God's Word without compromise. It simply refuses to go. Well, how about us? How about us in this scheme of the evil one against God's work and against God's people? Do we ever rationalize sin? We rationalize all kinds of sin in our society. We kill unborn children and we call it a woman's right to choose. We have this philosophy that as long as it doesn't harm others, if we're in the confines of our home, that we are free to do whatever it is that we want to do. We can seemingly turn black into white and white into black with simply a twist of our words. But how does this hit us as God's people? Does God expect faithfulness to His Word in all circumstances, even if it is uncomfortable for us, His people? Even if it is risky for us, His people? And the evil one whispers to our hearts, did God really say? I challenge you this morning from the book of Nehemiah to to guard against rationalizing your sin. To pray for a sensitivity that recognizes the schemes of the devil in this regard that you might know your enemy and be able to resist him. You don't have to understand everything about your circumstances. Your own comfort is not the number one priority in life. We don't have to protect our interests. God will handle things. He promises to handle things. He simply calls us to follow Him. Well, there's another thing wrong with Shemaiah's request. You see it in verse 11 as Nehemiah says, should, should such a man as I run away? See, all this time through our story, Nehemiah has exhibited himself. He has shown himself to be a man of great courage, a man of great faith and dependence upon what God had called him to do. And, and what would that testimony then be? if he tucked his tail and ran and hid in the temple of God. Now, Nehemiah would not discredit himself or the name of God, and so he says, no, I won't go. Paul warned the church to give no opportunity to the devil, to the one who was waiting to pounce, particularly on leaders. 
And here's a great challenge for you as the church, as, as we bring just this first point to a close. That you know the enemy of God's work, yes. That you might be able to stand firm against it and recognize it, yes. But know also, as a result of Nehemiah 6, how much he wants those who lead you. How much he wants those who lead. If he can get a leader to compromise, if he can get a leader to rationalize sin, if he can get a leader discredited, oh, he gets so much more. And so I remind you this morning to pray for your leaders. I'll selfishly say, pray for me. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. Pray for courage in the face of such schemes against God and against His work. Well, there's many more schemes that we could look at throughout the Scriptures, but let's move to the second truth. And it has to do with verses 15 and 16. The wall was finished on the 25th day in 52 days. We end at least this chapter, at least this portion of Nehemiah on a positive note. On a high, in fact. And so the second truth is this. Rejoice, for God's work will prevail. Rejoice, for God's work will prevail. For hundreds of years through His prophets, God had been promising the rebuilding of Zion. And now on October 27, 445 B.C., 52 days after it began, the wall is done. And the task had seemed impossible. After all, the, the rubble had been there for over a hundred years. The, the crew that was assembled to build this wall was not a bunch of builders. And it seemed at more than one point that the wheels were just going to come off the whole project. But the work had been accomplished through the help of our God. Even amidst the joy, even amidst the completion, there is this political pressure that's still being applied. And yet God's work prevails even in the midst of His enemies. And so I end with some promises. Some scriptural promises. What is God's work that prevails, that will prevail in you? Oh, there's so many promises that we can look to in the Scriptures. Let me read just a few of God's work that will prevail. Romans 8.28 We know that God that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 107, He satisfies the longing soul. Every soul He fills with good things. All that work will come true in your life because of His promise. How about in the church? Ephesians 3.10 Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And to the nations, God says in Isaiah 61.11, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Revelation 7, 9, and 10, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, I could go on and on through the Scriptures and remind you of the promises that are yours as God's work in your life, in our church, in the world comes to pass. And it's the certainty of these promises that enable us to walk and to live a life of faith. It's these promises that bring comfort and strength to lives that are so easily and so often bombarded by the schemes of the enemy. For these are promises that are not based upon what you or I think or what we say. They're not based upon how strong we are, how smart, how successful we can become. No, these are promises that rest on Him alone. He who is true, He who is trustworthy, God's work will prevail in and through us. That's reason for rejoicing. That's reason to press on knowing our enemy, standing firm in the faith, resting in His promises. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word again this morning. Thank You for its truth. Thank You for its comfort for our souls, its challenge to our hearts. Father, we need grace to hear it. We need grace to believe it. We need grace to live it. And so we plead once again that You would carry us from this place with that promised grace that Your work will prevail. So Lord, help us be faithful as we walk. As we seek to know the schemes of our enemy. And stand in the truth. Father, we love You. Thank You for loving us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.